good morning. As Pastor Andrew said, yeah, we may not all be coming and rejoicing in the weather, although it's nice, but we still may be coming with heavy hearts. We may be here on our last legs of strength or in those periods of, of waiting on the Lord. And uh, the song that we just sang, uh, Ceaseless Praise, that's the direction the direction that we're heading, but we're not there yet. Ceaseless praise of, of Christ. But as we do come this morning, even, even with the struggles maybe of the past week or maybe dreading, a, even if it's a short week for you, the week ahead, uh, looking for strength, looking for the Lord to do His work, we come here today to center ourselves back on Christ, center our, our minds and our hearts on Him in whom we have life and strength and our union with Him. We just come this morning to worship Him, to hear truth about Christ and, and behold Him, behold Him for who He is. As we've been going through Colossians, we'll do that again, so I ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll continue here in the second part of of this chapter, maybe even back up a little bit as so much uh, in this letter overlaps with other things that Paul has already said as, as he writes to these believers in Colossae. Our purpose, again, is beholding Christ, uh, bringing our attention and focus, centering ourselves on the, the person and the work of Christ, which, of course, affects how we live and, and grow and endure. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 1, Beginning of chapter 2, we looked at Paul's stewardship, him pouring himself out for the sake of the church, that they would stand, that they would be mature. His concern, of course, about the empty philosophy that was surrounding them, these false teachers that had come in and were, they were in danger. And then, of course, his solution was the sufficiency of Christ. And all that we have in him, we looked at this last week, our union with Christ is Christ as the mediator of all the benefits of salvation, empowerment, enablement, yes, of course, forgiveness and salvation, but empowerment in dwelling in us is Christ living in us. Uh, Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, all who are united to Christ bring forth the fruit-bearing obedience and true holiness that can only be found in Christ, through Christ, by faith in Him, that He is in us and we are in Him. And much of the philosophy, much of the false, deceitful lies that are out there, even within the evangelical church, as we see these shifts, we're pulling us away from that very thing, that our union with Christ brings forth fruit-bearing obedience. We look for that in other ways. We look for that in our own strength. We try to uh, pull ourselves up from our own bootstraps so that we can carry on. Uh, Todd Still, in his uh, commentary, in the Expositor's Bible Commentary on Colossians, states the summary of Colossians like this. Colossians lauds Christ as supreme and central. He is the reason for and ruler of creation he is the preexistent and the preeminent one. He is the image, fullness, and mystery of God who was crucified, buried, and resurrected. He is the head of the church now enthroned on high as God's agent 
of redemption and reconciliation. He is the object of the church's worship, behavior, and hope. As Colossians 3.11 puts it, Christ is all and in all. It would be difficult to find a better summation of this epistle. And in fact, this quote from Todd Still really sets the stage for what we've already looked at in chapter 1 and partly into chapter 2. But it would be a mistake for us to think or assume that Paul's letter is, is just written to, within some vacuum, that there isn't anything really going on here, that this is just an out-of-touch theological exercise. On the contrary, the dangers were real. The dangers that they were facing were pressing in, and they were very serious. The philosophy of the day for Paul was to remove Christ from his throne. It would seem, in fact, every philosophy, if it's apart from revelation, if it's outside of Christ, if it's outside of this biblical framework, outside of the book, every philosophy apart from Christ in every generation attempts to do that very thing, remove Christ and his exclusive claim as God himself. That he came to die for us and was raised from the dead, and it's through him that we can find salvation, exclusively Christ alone. But the philosophy of the day has other ideas. Uh, Oz Guinness in his book, uh, The Dust of Death, frames it kind of like this. He, He illustrates the philosophy of the day as if all the philosophers are going into a room, a room with no doors, a room with no windows, Uh, There's no light in there. There's no exit. There's no way out of this. And they're trying to find the meaning of life, the identity of who we are, why are we here, what's the purpose of all this. And they're trying to construct that meaning of, of life through their philosophy from everything that's in that room. They know outside the room there's light. There's other truth. There's God's truth. And they don't want to let that light in. It's not that they're ignorant that there's a light, a truth that has been revealed through the Scriptures, it's that they're refusing, stubbornly refusing, to let any of that light in. And they're trying to find identity, they're trying to find meaning from life. As I proposed last week, these two statements, these two propositions, I think, apply still as we continue on in chapter 2 here, that we are always in danger of being ensnared, of being captivated by deceptions and lies, whether that be from the world in our flesh or the schemes of the enemy. Therefore, we must continue to strive together to be captivated by Christ and Him alone, that we would, by grace, through faith, abide in Him, stand firm in Him, worship Him, and make Him known. This is what we do as a community. I use the plural we pronoun. And usually when we hear that, we right away translate that, mean, well, that means me. Uh, he's talking to me, just me. No, we must continue to strive in community, in this family, in this church, through our relationships to be captivated by Christ. We are not lone rangers. We are the bride of Christ And he is conforming us, purifying us by the word as he sanctifies us. He captivates us by his grace, 
by His mercy. As we grow together, this is how we'll stand. Not just one person off on their own. So before we get into this, we'll start in verse 8 of of chapter 2. Let me pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to help us here today. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I I thank you again for this living word that we're looking into here today, which we need each and every day of our life, of course. May you speak to us uh, through your Holy Spirit, through these words on this page in a way that will impact us. And Lord, we need our eyes to be opened. We need our hearts right now to be open to receive by faith these things which you're going to say through this letter again from Paul to the believers at Colossae help us to see ourselves in them and understand their situation, their context, their dangers, the threats that were before them and see and understand that we have very similar threats here in our midst. And Father, we need to be strengthened, rooted in you, built up in you, We ask that you would do that. So, Father, bless your word. May it perform exactly what you've set it out to do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to pick this up in in verse 8 here of of chapter 2, just to kind of put together the rest of this chapter, uh, Paul's framework again of his concerns, and as he leads these believers to the solution. We're probably going to come back to, at the end, verses 6 and 7, which we've, we've brushed over. And, and some of this, we've already given it one pass, uh, maybe two brief passes, but we'll probably do that again. Because Paul brings back the readers to certain points of this letter, I think verses 6 and 7 are key that we're going to get to a little bit later on. But as he goes through verses 8 through 23, the rest of this chapter, it's dominated by his concerns. He is developing this theological answer, uh, refute to the false teachers and their practices that they were setting before the believers in Colossae. Things like the completeness of Christ, which we've talked about, the fullness of Christ, His sufficiency, and that we are full in Him. And then today, as we move through this, it'll be about His authority, uh, which, of course, He will demonstrate again to the church that we share with Him in those things. We share in our union with Him in His fullness, in His sufficiency, in His completeness, and in fact in His, His authority. So our outline here today will be looking at threats. Threats to a Christ-centered life or Christ-centered living. We'll just walk through these. I'll leave these outlines up here, but the thread of danger of of being deceived by empty philosophy, uh, verses 8 through 15, being bullied by legalism, verses 16 and 17, and then being swayed by mysticism. That'll be at the end, verses 18 to 23. So the threat to Christ-centered living, the threat to living and, and, and yielding to this Christ who's living through us. That is to be deceived by empty philosophy, bullied by legalism, and swayed by mysticism. And at every point, 
the philosophy, the regulations, the rules, the, the mystical worship is apart from Christ. It's apart from His absolute, all-encompassing authority. It's outside of the reality of the cross. It's outside of the reality or the effects, even, of the cross. So, first of all, verse, verse 8, this is the first threat, uh, being deceived by empty philosophy. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tr- tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. Probably this word would have sent chills down their spines. To be taken captive means to be carried off as plunder of war. To be devastated, controlled completely, to be dragged off, sold maybe, enslaved, to be captive, to be plunder of war. Paul saw real dangers. The threat is serious. And Paul doesn't ignore this in other situations. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn back a few, few letters here at the Galatians chapter 5. He says very similar concerns. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Again, speaking to a, a false, distorted gospel. He says in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, going back again to the, to the law, to the ceremonial rites, to be a, a, considered a, a person of God a, um, in his family, in relationship with, with God, Paul says that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation then to keep the whole law. You've been severed from Christ. You who are being justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You are running so well, he says in verse 7. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Christ set you free. Stand firm in that, but you're being captured by another ideology, another philosophy, and it's shifting you away from the truth. And all it's doing is bringing you back into the yoke of slavery once again, thinking we can keep the law, thinking that traditions are the way to maintain or be marked as a follower of Christ, you're actually, he says in Galatians, you're setting yourselves up, you're obligated to keep the whole law, fallen away from grace, severed from Christ, very strong, very strong word. Why is that? Because Christ kept the whole law. And through faith in Him, we are declared righteous. In your union with Him, we have new life. Because of Him, we are now alive to God. So His answer here in Colossians is to point the church 
to Christ, to see Christ as the all-sufficient one, to grasp the reality that Christ is, in fact, the fullness of God. So if we read beyond verse 8, let me just read through verse 15. This is the first threat of empty, deceitful philosophy. He's just got done saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you are also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. By doing that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him, in Christ. So he begins with this warning about false teachers, but then he dominates this next few verses with this theological explanation of why they should reject the false teaching. And it's interesting, if we had time, we could read and compare more from earlier in in this letter, but he picks up some language and the ideas of, of things that he's already talked about. The warning about avoiding these false teachers in verse 8, don't, don't let them uh, deceive you here, he says also in the beginning of the chapter, and we talked about this last week, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, don't be deluded with plausible arguments. But if we go back even further, maybe to a lesser extent, a little bit different degree here, but the same, uh, same interest that Paul has in, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. And that's really the full force of his concern. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Believing philosophy, being tricked by philosophy, being deceived by philosophy really comes down to this. Don't shift from the hope that you have in the good news of Jesus Christ and what He has done and that He is coming again. And who you are in Christ, don't shift from the hope that you have in the gospel. Don't go running after all these other ideas, these other trickery ways that we think that we can be sanctified or become more holy. If it happens outside of Christ, Paul says, it doesn't happen. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. At the same time, as he goes through these verses 9 through 15, he also is going back to what we already covered, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that very high Christology of, of Paul as he breaks into probably the highest words that we see about Christ. There's some parallels here. In chapter, nine, or chapter 2, verse 9, he says, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. He said the same thing in chapter 1, 
verse 19. So both passages claim the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. Both label Christ, both in verse 10 of chapter 2 and then also verse 16 of chapter 1, they both, or 18, they label Christ as the head. He is the head. He has full authority. And both passages proclaim his supremacy over other powers. He does that here in verse 10 of chapter 2, and then he does it in verse 16 of chapter 1. And then both are also tying his victory over these powers to the, to the cross. He says this in verse 20 of chapter 1, that Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. And then here in verse 15 that we just read, he disarmed the rulers by triumphing over them in him through the cross. So he parallels back to that very high uh, Christological passage in chapter 1, but he also elaborates here in these verses 9 through 15 on the significance uh, for believers of Christ's supremacy, of, of Christ's exclusivity by identifying us with him through faith. We believers experience spiritual fullness in verse 10. Just as he is full with all deity, we also experience that because in him we are full here in verse 10. We are in Christ in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. All that we can know, all that we can experience of God is found in Christ. And these false teachers were, were really pressing the issue that, no, you need to find that outside of him. We need to look nowhere else other than Christ. This is Paul's message. Christ is all and in all. So this first threat uh, to be deceived, to be captured by hollow and deceptive false philosophy, for Paul, it's all based on human tradition. Uh, it's all of elemental spirits. It's empty. It's vain. It's, it's hollow. It's not according to Christ. It does not have the application of Christ coming into this so-called knowledge and wisdom. It's just like that dark room with the philosophers that refuse to apply the light of God's truth and revelation to the meaning of life, who we are, why we exist. It's just like those philosophers. But in Christ, Paul says, fullness. He is the head. All authority and rule is his. In verse 10, you have been filled in him. He goes on, and we've covered some of these verses uh, in the previous weeks. Uh, in verse 11, circumcised in him, a new heart, cut off from the flesh. Verse 11, putting off the body of the flesh. We're also in verse 12, buried with him, raised with him. And through faith in what? The powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Verse 13, you were once dead in your trespasses, but God made alive, made you alive together in Christ. Human tradition, empty, zero authority, zero substance, zero benefit. But Christ, absolute authority. And listen to how he again lays out that authority in verses 13 and 15, through 15 again. And you being dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, 
having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. How did he do that? He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which were against us, which were hostile towards us. He's also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And by doing that, I read this earlier, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, having triumphed over them in him. He has the authority to forgive. He has the authority to remove this record of debt. The legal demands against each one of you. The charges that were written against each one of us. The debt that we could not pay has been canceled. This word canceled, there is some reference to this being a a legal and commercial connotation referring to the act of wiping out a written document. uh, erasing it, rendering it null and void. Here, Paul is portraying this action of God through the cross in dealing with the debt against us, this certificate that stood against us, canceling it, obliterating it, wiping it away. Paul could have used a different word. He could have used the word that means cross it out, but he didn't. Wiped it away, obliterated it. The implication is that by faith in Christ, And the work of Christ on the cross, in our place, we are no longer held captive by our past sins. We are no longer burdened by the weight of guilt and condemnation in Christ. This certificate, he took it away, he removed it, he didn't just cross it out, because if you cross it out, you can still see it. How many of us still see that ourselves? We cross it out. All our trespasses, that sum, the debt that we owe, we we just cross it out, but we can still see it. And we remind ourselves of that, don't we? Christ didn't do that. He didn't just cross it out. He wiped it away. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. He didn't even just tear it up. He actually put it on his account. He took our place. He took the wrath of the Father that we deserve and he put it on himself. He kept the law perfectly and yet was punished as if he had committed every transgression. How can this be? Only the grace of God. Paul builds up to verse 15. He builds up to this authority uh, that by doing this, he fulfills the demands of the law. He also disarms the demonic powers, and the authorities that are behind them. Triumph, victory through the achievement of the cross. Paul celebrates this in other places. Uh, He says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in this processional of triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. It's like a parade is going on all over the place because of our position in Christ, because of our forgiveness, because of our righteousness that has been placed on our account. It's because we are celebrating, worshiping Christ for his work on the cross. So this threat to a Christ-centered life, to be deceived, wanes when we are in Christ, when we're yielding to him, when we're beholding him, it wanes. When we understand the fullness of God in Christ, when we understand that we are full in Him, that He is sufficient in every way, and He holds absolute authority 
over all things. So the meaning of life, identity, purpose, it's only found in Christ. It's not in that dark room. We won't find anything in that dark room. And Paul here at the end of uh, chapter 1 did the same thing. As he moves into chapter 2, he's assuring them of the sufficiency of Christ and the humbling defeat, the humbling defeat of the powers that are working against us. So the next threat is here in verses 16 and 17, and that is when he is really presenting to them before uh, these false teachers that you are in danger, the threat of being bullied, being bullied by rules, regulations, and legalism. He says, therefore, this is the second time he's done this, verse 8 was the first one, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one judge you when it comes to rules and regulations and observances and festivals or or Sabbath. Again, bringing Jewish regulations back to prominence as the way to approach God, relate to God, and maintain their standing with Him. As He addresses these dietary matters, we know that He does this in other places. Romans 14, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 8, probably 9 and 10, He, he addresses these kinds of things. But there, it's interesting, He expresses His conviction that in Christ, we are free to do what our conscience dictates. We have personal freedom to choose not to eat or to eat, to observe or, or not to observe. His caution there in Romans and 1 Corinthians is not to force that on others, but also for the strong to be sensitive to the weak. He says all food is clean, but it's wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. But here, the contrast in Colossians is that he addresses these believers to deflect potential judgment from those who are eating and drinking and observing this feast in a sense of demanding it on them and actually bullying them. So unlike in Romans, where there was no doubt an internal dispute, here Paul is refuting the outsiders who are using these issues to ridicule these believers and and pressure these believers in Colossae. In fact, it's as if these opponents have become the arbiter. They use these food laws, they use these sacred days as a part of their criteria to determine who is right with God and who is wrong with God. And Paul says, therefore, uh, let no one judge you in these things. The threat to a Christ-centered life or Christ-centered living, these false teachers were seeking to bring them again back into the bondage of the law, making artificial distinctions between ceremonial laws and moral laws, observances, rules, regulations, special days. Those are ceremonial laws, not moral laws, and they're bringing them all together, showing that laws and rules and these observations, these regulations in fact, are instead misunderstood. It's not the way to relate to God or maintain your standing with God. It's actually a removal of 
relationship. It's a removal of the heart. But most importantly, it's a removal of the work of Christ, which is the only thing that brings us near to God. So let no one bully you into these practices. Let no one pass judgment. Why? Verse 17, very interesting verse uh, where he says, these are the shadow, these rules, these observations, these dietary regulations, these are shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. This idea of shadow and substance, common in Greek thinking, the way of logic, they would show contrast between things that are referring to objective and concrete intimations of what is really real, a prototype, or the original. So there's these levels of things that are shadows leading up to the actual the actual prototype or the actual original of what these other things are showing or demonstrating. Uh, so Plato, he would think that everything in this world that we see is, is a mere shadow. It's an imperfect reflection of some higher realm, some eter- eternal unchanging form. So the beauty that we see, Plato would say, is, is just a shadow. It's just temporary. It's just uh, it's some imperfect thing, but there is an unseen ultimate reality of beauty that is outside of ourselves. The shadow only points to the essence of that thing, but it's not the thing. It doesn't contain the essence that we cannot behold other, uh, through these senses that we have now. Paul modifies this structure, modifies the shadow substance to give it actually an eschatological and Christological slant. What are the phrases he adds? The things that were to come and found or belong to Christ. So these religious festivals, the new moons, the the Sabbath, these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These were all temporary, imperfect. They had their place given by God, but only representatives of the true reality found in Christ. With this, this contrast between shadow and substance, Paul once again emphasizes the surpassing significance and fulfillment of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. He encourages the Colossians to focus on the substance, not the shadows. Focus on the reality of Christ, his person, and his work, rather than getting caught up in these external religious observances that are only shadows of a greater truth. And the spiritual reality is only found in Christ. So we may not be bullied today. I'm sure we could think of some ways that maybe that happens, but I'll probably say that we bully ourselves We bully ourselves with rules, regulations, laws that we set up. It creeps in. We think it's our way of staying good. We think it's our way of self-regulating our standing before God. And we, of course, have a strong tendency to compare ourselves. Well, if they're doing that, if they're keeping it that way, then certainly I should too. We bully ourselves And here Paul says, let no one judge you for these things because these are just shadows. Focus on the substance, Christ himself. 
So the threats of uh, being deceived by empty philosophy, being bullied by others, uh, and then this last one here, verses 18 to 23, being swayed by mysticism. This is the next threat to a Christ-centered life. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about their visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, verse 19, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He goes on, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Being swayed by mysticism, the, the object maybe of our worship, the display of our worship, but probably more importantly, the means that we think of our transformation. Again, a shift away from Christ. Transformation apart from Christ, worship apart from Christ, outside of Christ, outside of His revelation. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one take away your worth of receiving a prize, or let no one deprive you of your spiritual reward. Let no one condemn you or rob you of what is rightfully yours. The NASB actually says, let no one defraud you of your prize. Basically, let no one cheat you out of what you already have in Christ. Let no one cheat you out of what you already have in Christ. We can think in terms of future rewards. That's probably the first place we go. I'm not sure if that's Paul's intent. Certainly, it applies. But think in terms of presently. Living by any substitute for Christ. Cheating you out of the benefits that we have in Christ. The spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Cheating you out of the empowerment that you get from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Christ in you. Don't let anybody cheat you out of that by adding all these other things. The false teachers were insisting on luring them into this uh, mysticism. Verse 18, asceticism, delighting in self-abasement. Abasement, that's the NASB. Delighting in self-abasement. Self-denial of pleasure. With a goal of growth, with a goal of enhancing godliness, but it's manufactured to train in or to maintain holiness. Again, by denying certain pleasures, it's self-effort. By, in fact, controlling your desires and denying yourself apart from the gospel, apart from the power of Christ. It's, in fact, a, a distorted focus on external practices, and it pulls you into this mode of self-righteousness, mostly self-imposed, not word-driven. In the end, it's attempting by your own strength to change, to obey, 
to elevate these imperatives that we see maybe even in Scripture, but leaving out the indicatives of who we are in Christ and what He has accomplished, and to live by faith in Him working in us this transformation and conformity. It denies the means of grace. It denies the work of Christ. Ascetic practices become a means of self-justification, detracting from the centrality of God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ's work. It's standing in opposition of the message of the gospel. And then he goes on, verse 18, the worship of angels, which are forbidden, of course, to worship anything else other than God and Christ. In fact, legalism is talked about in 1 Timothy as uh, teaching inspired by fallen angels, 1 Timothy 4.1, who as elemental spirits in Galatians would bring men into slavery by their mystical meditations. Certainly don't have time to talk about mystical meditations, but you could pick up some devotionals that lead you in this mystical meditations. Apart from Christ, apart from His Word, dwelling on what they have seen in visions, which certainly is not um, something that we lack in hearing. I saw this. I saw that. God told me this. God told me that. They're dwelling on what they have seen in these visions, and, and Paul actually calls them in Galatians idle notions. New, something exciting, something shiny brings me near to God. Apart from the blood of Christ, it can't happen. It's probably more impressive to others than it is to God. But in reality, their practices are, look at this list that he goes through here in verse 18, they're puffed up, they're inflated by sensuous fleshly minds. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head who is Christ. It gives the appearance of wisdom in verse 23, promoting self-made religion. In verse 23, damaging the body. All of this results in, look at just two verses, verse 19 and verse 23, no growth because growth, growth only comes from God. And we are connected, abiding in this union with the head. Verse 23, none of which, none of these practices have any power to live for God or put off sin. There's no power in these things. And of course, he gives this head and body metaphor in verse 219, the head supplying the nourishment to the whole body. That's what enables growth. Literally, that text reads, it grows the growth of God, our union with Him, the body being connected to the head. Growth hinges on this close bond with Christ through which God brings change. And if we're not holding to Christ, then Paul is really saying that these false teachers are cutting themselves off from the only source of vitality and strength and empowerment and ability because it's relying instead on self. So these higher realities that they would tend to believe, these legal, legalistic mystics have actually lost their connection with the head of Christ who alone supplies life and God is because God is the one who grows that. So again, if we come back to those two propositions, 
We're always in danger of being ensnared or captivated. The threat of a Christ-centered life, Christ-centered living, the threats of being deceived by empty philosophy apart from Christ, of being bullied by legalism, rules, regulations, being swayed by mysticism, self-denial, but cutting ourselves off from the actual power of Christ living in Him. We, we have to continue to strive together to be captivated by Christ alone. Every sentence, it seems, is connected in, in Colossians. I, I, I believe that of most of the Scriptures, of course, but Colossians is so interconnected, so woven together. Um, if, if we were to read his prayer that we read back in our opening week, um, Colossians chapter 1, we would see very similar to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I'll just read the middle of this prayer. Verse, this is chapter 1, verse 10. His prayer is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. He goes on, joyously, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in this inheritance of the saints in the light. Chapter 2, very similar things. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in Him, having been established in your faith just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. In both texts, he actually has four different participles elaborating this life or the walk that characterizes the believers. Both have these participles that employ these horticultural metaphors, building metaphors, construction metaphors, and they both conclude with thanksgiving, the outflow of Christ's work leading to thanksgiving. Uh, parallelism, really striking for Paul, probably shows us that very often in the beginning of his letter, he sets up a structure of, of what he's going to talk about a little bit later on as he anticipates further discussion. But if we were to just look at here, verse 7, these, these four participles, I'm just going to throw those up on the screen for you, firmly rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, established in the faith, or some translations, in your faith, and then resulting in this abounding in thanksgiving. The first two participles, rooted up and built up, very closely related, expressing the same idea. They're, they're flowing, both of them, out of this phrase, in Him, right? The rooting is uh, in Christ. The building up is in Christ. Uh, to be rooted is to be firmly sourced in that which gives growth, to be strengthened, this vital connection to the source. We understand that. When you're rooted well, you're going to produce this fruit. And then he, of course, adds here built up construction metaphor, a building metaphor has the sense of building something on something else or the process of building. He talks about this in other places. He, he talks about the building up of a community of the church on foundations laid by others in 1 Corinthians. He does that in chapter 3. He also talks about God's church God's people being built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets in Ephesians chapter 2. We, 
can live lives that exemplify the lordship of Christ only by remaining like branches firmly attached to the vine in which God himself has placed us. And then the third participle is that we would be established, established in the faith just as you were taught. Another change of metaphor. There are some places you can find this Greek word established talking about being validated or guaranteed in some, some legal documents, but this generally means in the Septuagint and the New Testament to confirm, to strengthen, to establish, to be firm and, and grounded in Christ. And with this participle, Paul is summarizing what he expects to happen from the first two. By, by sticking to our roots, by being built up, the believers will be established in the faith. All three of those participles are actually passive, meaning that it's God who does the rooting, the building, and the establishing. Then these three end up overflowing into the fourth one, thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is convinced that true gratitude for God's grace is actually one of the countermeasures to the false teaching. But it's also what's, what happens when we behold Christ, when we are rooted in Him, when we are built up in Him, when we are established in the gospel, we will overflow with praise, thanksgiving, and worship. So these threats to the Christ-centered life, being deceived by worldly philosophy, being bullied by legalism, even bullying ourselves by adding laws and regulations, being swayed by mysticism, all connect back to this prayer in chapter 1 and this exhortation in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The solution to these false teachers that Paul is giving as he guards the church is that they would stand firm in their completeness and their fullness of Christ. As we have received Him, so walk in Him. Firmly rooted in Christ, built up in Christ, established in the faith as you are taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Are we positioning ourselves to stand against the threats of our day? Are we positioning ourselves to be firmly rooted, to be built up, to be established so that we can abound in thanksgiving? How are we positioning ourselves to that end? It's a question we have to come face to face to with every day. How am I positioning myself today to be rooted in Christ, firmly rooted in Him, the person of Christ, the completed work of Christ? How am I being positioning myself to be built up today in Christ, established in the faith, just as I was taught? in the Word, abounding then out of those three in thanksgiving. John Calvin uh, writes about the community, the, the family of God, the church often. He says, we're not called to a life of isolation, but to community. The church is where believers come together, exhort and encourage one another, and build each other up in the faith. It is in this context that we grow and remain rooted in Christ. 
very often when we read these letters of Paul, we, we just think about ourselves. Mostly maybe it's an American thing because there are other cultures that don't think about just ourselves first. They think in terms of community, broader family. And here, as we receive, as we read this letter, it was written to a church. It was actually passed to Laodicea so that they could read it as a church. As we read this, we read this as a church, as a community, as the body of Christ. We're not called to a life of isolation, but to a life of community. Where we come together, we exhort, we encourage, we build up, up each other in the faith. And it's in that context that we grow and remain rooted in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we need you. We need you to do your work of building us up, of keeping us rooted in Christ and in your truth and establishing us in the faith. We need to be reminded to center ourselves again on on Christ. And I, I pray that today your spirit is at work through your living word in such a way that we would find Christ to be our center, that we would throw off all other empty, vain, useless ideas and philosophies and turn to you alone. We need you to do that work. And I pray, God, that you would do that work in all of us as this, this body of Christ here as we meet and gather and center ourselves on you and your truth that you would do your transforming work in us and through us together as a body, as a family, across the different families that are represented within that family, within this church, that we would be impacted by the gospel each and every day. Thank you for your great work. We thank you that we can gather here together and once again be re-centered on who Christ is and what he has accomplished, that we would go from this place as your witnesses, bringing light to very dark places. Use us for your purpose and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.